Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Real Science Exchange, the pubcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal agriculture. Tonight, we're talking about the feed supply chain and biosecurity and the many challenges we face as we try to keep various animal diseases at bay. In late July, USDA announced that African swine fever was detected in the Dominican Republic, inching dangerously closer to the U.S. swine herd. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts here tonight at the Real Science Exchange. Tonight, we welcome Dr. Jordan Gephardt from Kansas State University to the pub. He joined us on the Real Science Lecture Series in early September to give us a look into this important topic. If you want to watch the webinar, go to balchem.com slash real science and then scroll down through the uh, recorded uh, sessions. Tonight, we're going to go a bit deeper and discuss how disease is spread and what we can do to mitigate it. Dr. Gephardt, welcome to the Real Science Exchange. Well, thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with the group today and uh, look forward to the discussions over the next uh, period of time we have together. All right. Well, as you know, we typically have some drinks while we're on, on the, the pubcast here, but uh, I understand uh, both you and Chad are at the university today and, and uh, don't have any drinks. So, but why don't you tell us if you were drinking, what would be your drink of choice? Yeah, I keep it pretty simple. Um, stick to beers normally, light beers and uh, hoppy IPAs a little bit. So a little bit of anything as long as it's cold. Yeah, good. Hey, can you give us a little bit of background in terms of how did you get started in the area of biosecurity? Yeah. So I grew up on a, a small family farm in, in western Michigan, and uh, my dad owned and operates a local grain elevator and feed mill as well. So spent a lot of time um, there understanding the day-to-day the -day operations of the feed mill and really enjoyed that. And also spent some time growing up with a swine veterinarian in West Michigan and really enjoyed that as well with helping to take data production records and helping to make both health and management rec recommendations and understanding what's going on with the herd. So really, I, I enjoyed both of those avenues. And when I went and got a, a bachelor's degree in animal science from Michigan State University um, prior to coming out here to K-State. And, and really at that point, I didn't know if I wanted to go down the, go further down the, the pathway of nutrition and with some of my upbringing, the feed mill and, and uh, experience and really passion for that area, or if I wanted to go down the path of veterinary medicine and, and really look at swine production medicine. Um, so one of my real good mentors at Michigan State had put me in touch with the swine team here at Kansas State University. So I was fortunate that uh, came out and, uh, and had a chance to um, learn more about the program and was given a chance to stick around and be able to, to do both my PhD in, in animal science here at K-State, as well as uh, get my DVM degree here from the university as well. Um, so in both of those, it, uh, I really did kind of go down this tangential pathways of both understanding and learning and conducting research focused on nutrition, but also a large component of, of that training was also focused on the area of biosecurity, specifically, specifically looking at the feed side. Um, and at that time with uh, PEDV or porcine epidemic diarrhea virus uh, being introduced into the U.S. and 2013, but really spreading throughout much of North America through 2014. Um, it was really a time where we had an opportunity to learn more about the, how the feed supply chain interacts with animal health. And there are several examples over the decades where this is, is uh, particularly important, not so much on the swine side, however, um, understanding the risk and, and spread of salmonella in um, 
poultry feed obviously is very important and quite a bit of time is spent thinking about that but really on the swine side specifically thinking about viruses it really was a, a relatively new concept for us so i had a chance to conduct some research um, over the years um, looking specifically at that and and then more recently um, finishing up my schooling here at the university just under two years ago and have since transitioned on into a faculty role and helped to continue to conduct some of that train the next generation of animal scientists and veterinarians to go out into the field and and have a good solid research background and research training to know how to apply ideas from not only an academic or a research paper perspective but how do you take that information, generate uh, recommendations, and, and communicate those recommendations to those producers in the field? So real fortunate for the opportunity to do that and through that training and have had great mentors, great experiences, both at Michigan State and as well here at Kansas State. And fortunate for the opportunity to continue to work with grad students and, and work with faculty and, and colleagues like Dr. Polk here that uh, we're real lucky to have on our team here on staff at K-State. Yeah, speaking of Dr. Polk, I see that you brought him as a guest. Why don't you tell us a little bit of, uh, about him? Yeah, so I'll uh, I'll let I'll let Chad do a lot of the the big introductions, but uh, <laughs> really what I what I thought would be a real interesting to to sit down and have a conversation here today um, is really focusing on um, the ability of of taking science and translating it into the field. And, uh, and Chad does a lot of work working with feed mills and this area and this concept of feed biosecurity. Uh, really look forward to Chad's thoughts and, and what we have and what we generate as a discussion in the area. Not only what do we know about veterinary medicine and, and Chad's training as well in nutrition, but how do we translate that into practical decisions in the field that producers and, and feed mills can implement? Chad, I understand you're also there at the university today. Uh, and if you were drinking, uh, what would be in your glass today? Um, I'd probably try to find a, a nice local refreshing IPA. All right, good. But I good you can't go wrong with a Coors Light either. Well, that's true too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Tonight, tonight, my co-host is Dr. Zach Lohman. Zach is an monogastric technical uh, service lead here at Balchem. Zach, what are you drinking tonight, and how did you meet uh, both Jordan and Chad? I, uh, I'm pretty uh, basic when it comes to alcohol. I've got a Miller Lite. They're my uh, usual go-to. Oh, and I met Chad, oh, what, four or five years ago at least? Uh, it, I don't even remember which conference it was, conference it was at. But uh, we have several mutual friends, and uh, we always seem to run into each other at these conferences. Oh, very well. So tonight, I'm, I'm going to have a, a wash, Wabash Reserve from the Boot Hill Distillery, and this was given me by uh, Miss Stacy. Stacy is the producer of our podcast, and I want to thank her for that. I'm looking forward to having it. To get us started, um, can you guys both summarize the uh, African swine fever situation as it stands today? Uh, here in early October 2021. Yeah, so after a real brief background on, on this very devastating disease is ASF or African swine fever is caused by a virus. Um, and, and this virus is similar to many other viruses that we deal with not only in pig production, but livestock production and, and even more broadly in human medicine as well. But there are some very unique characteristics about this virus that make it particularly challenging, which we'll spend a little bit of time kind of digging into a little bit more. But as of now, it's it's been a endemic or they're steadily circulating in certain regions of the world for many decades. 
been in Africa for a very long time, um, been, been in Eastern Europe um, for well over a decade. And then in 2018 or so, it, uh, it made its trek over to Southeast Asia um, and, and has since been rapidly circulating through much of the, that region over there, um, really devastating the swine production and, and agricultural systems. Um, and it's, it's interesting that uh, not only does a disease like ASF um, affect just pig production, but also the other very intricate branches of agriculture that feed in or involved with pig production. For example, here in the U.S., um, a typical pe uh, typical pig is fed a diet primarily consisting of corn and soybeans. Um, if there's a serious um, impact on the number of pigs we have on feed, that has ram huge ramifications on other areas or other aspects of swine of agricultural production. Where do those soybeans end up? Where does that corn end up? And what the the marketplace looks there for some of those other commodities. So it's really easy to. Um, immediately overlook that to some degree. Um, think about its disease affecting pigs, so it affects pig production, but really it, it extends much further beyond that. Affects not only that industry, but also the the other support industries that are heavily involved and and really has a those devastating foreign animal diseases have a tremendous impact on their communities. Um, not only the emotional toll that if controlling a disease like ASF, which largely uh, involves a lot of depopulation of, of affected animals as our primary, primary control strategy, because we don't have good vaccines that are approved and currently available for use today. So the impact on the producers and the communities um, when controlling some of these very devastating diseases has a huge impact. So as you mentioned, that made its way into the Dominican Republic in late July, and uh, it has since um, been diagnosed in Haiti as well. Um, so as of today, with the best of our knowledge, it's it's uh, restricted to just the one island um, of the Dominican Republic in Haiti. Um, however, we are very, very concerned that it could spread further from there um, into the mainland, um, South America, or, or even into Central America. Um, and, and here being in the U.S., very, very concerned about ways and potential routes of entry here into the U.S. as well. So understand this is not the first time it's been in the Dominican. In fact, back in the late 70s, it got to the Dominican, Haiti, and I believe also Puerto Rico. Um, but it was eradicated. How did they do that? Yeah, really, as we mentioned, the, the biggest way that we help control this disease is through um, depopulation or euthanasia of affected animals. Um, we don't have a vaccine that's currently available. There are several different that are different stages of development and approval processes. But today, if a population is affected with this disease, if it were to be here in the U.S., our primary strategy would be to um, re remove those affected animals from our herd to prevent uh, that, that animal of being able to cause that virus to reproduce and, and further disseminate from there. So in the past, in the late 70s, early 80s, um, Dominican, Haiti, um, in that region, um, there were a, a large number of animals that had to unfortunately be depopulated to control the spread of that very devastating virus. So Jordan, we think a lot about domestic pigs and that's really all I know about. Um, but the, the interesting piece is the wild boar population. And we know in the US, especially down in Texas, those areas is huge. Do we actually think they actually completely depopulated it in the Dominican and were able to get rid of it out of those certain wildlife or was it just kind of lingering around and we didn't know about it? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know that I have the, the exact answer to it. Uh, <laughs> I don't I know imagine, if anybody does. But. <laughs> yeah, I imagine being dormant for 30 or 40 years probably wasn't all that likely. 
um, given that the um, the in that part of the world how linked in some degree the wild population is with domestic populations with wild boars coming in and and being very closely um, within proximity to, to domesticated pigs so i i would imagine or would guess it probably was eradicated from the island um, for a period of time and then this is a new introduction but it brings up a great point that here in the U.S., not only in Texas, and, and uh, wild boar populations seem to be creeping more and more north by the year. Sure. Um, whether that um, we can discuss or debate back and forth what may be causing or driving some of that, but it, uh, I think it is quite clear that uh, the feral pig population is broadening its range in a large sense. And, and once the disease gets into a, a wild pig population, it is extremely difficult to get out of, to get uh, the disease out of that population. And really that's part of what much of Europe is struggling with today in areas of Poland, Germany, that region. Um, it's primarily the, the wild pigs where they find this virus causing disease. Um, there are certain introductions from time to time into domestic pigs, um, but controlling it in wild pig populations is extremely challenging. And another disease, another virus um, that uh, the wild pigs have been particularly um, problematic to help control is pseudorabies virus. Mm -hmm. So pseudorabies virus has been eradicated from commercial swine in the U.S. since I believe about 2004. Um, however, there are questions remaining and, and still a, a pretty strong hypothesis that it, it, it is in our wild pig populations um, here in the U.S. So that's another one that uh, it's very challenging to control that that population of wild animals. Um, and once a disease gets in and, and continues to circulate, very, very challenging to eradicate it. The wild population, is it more susceptible or more resistant compared to commercial swan? Yeah, to my knowledge, I haven't dug into that information a tremendous amount, but at least um, the, the info that I do have, it seems that uh, in general, whether, I don't know exactly the mechanism behind it, but wild pigs it tend to survive a little bit better or don't seem to be as negatively impacted quite as well. Um, like any pathogen, if, if it does a good job of killing its host, in general, that's not a very good evolutionary strategy. You're not going to be around too long if you kill off all the hosts. So in the wild population, I think in, in some degree, it does tend to circulate more within the population as opposed to being a more devastating initial disease outbreak. Right. And domestic hogs, it's like 80% death rate, right? So are you saying it's less than that in the wild population? Yeah, I, it's hard to know exactly. And, and even on the domestic side, um, domestic pig population, it's, it's quite intriguing, some of the variability. And generally, we, we talk about as a highly impactful disease. And, and, and there are certainly some cases where mortality is very, very high, 70, 80, 90, 100% mortality in, in some of those cases. But there's also some, and, and part of it is, is where within the disease process you're looking at. Initially, within the first couple of weeks of being infected, it, it unfortunately doesn't look that much different than some of the other diseases we see more routinely. We've had uh, here in our U.S. pig population some really nasty PERS strains circulate in the past decade or so. And within the last six, eight months, it's been a really uh, virulent PERS-144 strain. And really, in, in the acute outbreaks of an AS, the acute stages of an ASF outbreak, it really doesn't look that different from a very highly virulent outbreak of PERS-144. However, as that disease process continues, there are certainly some signs that are that would indicate much, much more towards 
African swine fever, classical swine fever, but um, within the, depending on when you look at the different stages of infection with ASF, the clinical picture can vary quite substantially. A little bit of sickness, um, red pigs with uh, elevated body temperatures, um, but really looking somewhat normal. If you let that progress a couple of weeks within the population, then you can get to really, really high levels of mortality. So at uh, the 80% in, in general, if you let it progress long enough, I'd say it would be very accurate. But interestingly, it, it can vary quite a bit from situation to situation and outbreak to outbreak. Dr. Polk, um, I've heard it said that it's not a matter of if African swine fever makes it to the United States, it's a matter of when. What are your uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, I've, I've kind of thought the same way. Um, it, the interesting part of that equation has, I think more about how is it gonna get here? So yes, I'm with the when and, and how, and how can we delay that? And the exciting thing for us has been really looking into feed ingredients and feed as a vector and if that could be a potential and if we need to be thinking about what's the risk there and um, you know i think that was really a hot topic for us but as soon as it landed in the dominican and haiti i kind of stopped thinking about that and started to think there's probably other ways it's going to come to the u.s and i'm not as worried about ingredients and imports uh, right or wrong but now i'm starting to worry about if it gets here how do i prevent the spread through the feed supply chain. And so with how close the location is, I've shifted my thought process to, okay, when we do get it, what do we need to do? How do we not spread it all over the place with how our feed supply chain is designed? And if we do have something that gets contaminated, how do we decontaminate it? And um, the interesting thing coming back to the wild boar population, I think if you look in the Midwest and the way some of our production systems are designed, you know, we have those biosecurity practices in place that would hopefully keep a disease out that was in a wild boar population. The issue is, so if that pig dies in a field that is harvested, then does that grain get contaminated? So once again, what do we need to be thinking about on the feed supply chain side uh, to reduce that spread and, and potential risk of moving it around? So how do you think it got to the Dominican? And then if and when, or if it comes to the United States, how, you said you're not no longer thinking it's going to be feed. How's that going to happen? I'm, just for clarity, I'm not saying it's not going to be. I just don't think about it to the right. same intensity as I did. <laughs> um, you know, I'll let uh, Jordan comment on how it got to the Dominican. I have no clue. Um, I think the biggest concern is we think about people movement. And with the Dominican and Haiti uh, being so close and you have more people, whether it's immigration or travel, um, you know, coming across the potential for pork products being in, in, in my mind, seems to be the highest risk. Um, you know, it's a little easier to control when it's seen when it's further away, but when you increase those numbers, you have the potential um, that could, that seems to be the biggest issue. Yeah. And really one of the unique mentioned, there's some some things about this virus that are very similar to others and some things that are unique. One of the really unique pieces of African swine fever virus and classical swine fever virus are, is that they can be found in and survive in different meat products or pork products for a very extended period of time. 
Um, if something like uh, we mentioned PEDV, Porzan epidemic diarrhea virus a little bit earlier and how that has such a tremendous impact on young piglet mortality and basically strips their small intestine out so they can't absorb nutrients and, and, uh, and they dehydrate and, and uh, just due to lack of nutrition have that very high mortality. We don't really worry about whether a pork product would have that virus in it or not. Something like ASF, if I'm in a, an area of the world where ASF is circulating, if somehow an infected animal ends up um, being processed and made into a sausage, and even if that sausage is cured or processed for a period of time, um, there's some really good data out there that's been out there for a lo long time that would indicate that hundreds or more days after being processed, ASF virus can still be found in and be still infective. Um, within different pork products. So I think that's one of the, the big things that um, are even more of a challenge for ASF and CSF compared to some of the other foreign animal disease threats. Not only do we have to worry about the movement of people and, and whether they have that virus on their shoes or on their clothing or on their luggage, not only do we have to worry about if it's live animal imports into the U.S. from other parts of the world, making sure those animals aren't affected with that disease, but we also have to worry about food products or food byproducts. If a plane is is uh, coming into the U.S. from a part of the world and for some reason, if there are pork products being served on that plane or end up in the garbage, where does that material end up? Um, and generally, the, the um, Department of Homeland Security and our border protection folks do a great job of understanding where different vessels or planes have been and um, understanding the potential risk um, of what diseases they could introduce into the U.S. through those different uh, byproduct streams or garbage streams. Um, but I think that's a, it's a big challenge, especially in, in this part of the world that um, if it's uh, in the Dominican Republic and Haiti, um, quite a bit of traffic back and forth to Central America, whether it be air traffic, uh, vessel traffic or otherwise, um, if it gets introduced into Central America, then it is just a, it's a matter of time um, in, in sense of the number of people coming and going across our southern border, or even if it ends up in Canada coming across the northern border, just based on the number of folks coming and going, whether it's uh, immigration, um, routine trade and, and traffic, just that vast amount of people movement and product movement and food product movement, very, very difficult to control that volume. And in the sake of a, of a foreign animal disease like ASF, it really only takes one animal to be infected. Um, one, one example, one opportunity for a contaminated um, shoe, or clothing, meat product coming into contact with a wild pig or even worse, coming into contact with a domestic pig and then spreading within that population. And the number of folks and products coming and going on a daily basis is a very, very sub substantial and significant challenge for us. So the, the challenge with ASF, it can come in, in a lot of different ways and people movement. And, and I like to say that um, viruses, bacteria, different pathogens don't have legs. They can't walk, walk down the street or walk down to the neighbor's pig farm. There are certain, certain viruses, for example, that can aerosolize and, and spread for hundreds of yards, even, even miles in some, some cases. But viruses don't have legs. They're not going to walk from, um, from Kansas over to Missouri. Um, but what can happen and what do have legs are people in the vehicles that we drive. Um, so that's one of the, the big shifts in mindset that I've had to have as I le learn more about this area is understanding people movement, 
um, whether it be foot traffic or vehicle traffic, that's a really, really important piece to understanding the spread of infectious disease within our very integrated um, and very efficient swine production and feed production systems. So you talked a little bit about uh, it being spread by hogs. Can it be spread by other animals? And I don't mean as a fomite, but actually, you know, can it infect humans? Maybe it doesn't cause disease, but can we be carriers, um, yeah. birds, rodents, those kinds of yeah. things? Yeah, so ASF, African swine fever, and classical swine fever, the only animals that those can infect are sewed species, so swine species, whether it's a domesticated pig or a wild boar, um, and there's several different variants of that, um, but does not infect other animals whatsoever, um, If uh, does not affect humans whatsoever, and there's no food safety risk whatsoever to humans. Um, if an animal ingests a infected carcass, um, that virus can pass through them. However, the virus does not replicate uh, within a host other than a pig whatsoever. And again, we talk about it being able to spread in meat products. Um, but even if in the off chance that a human were to consume those contaminated products, more so in, in other parts of the world and not here in the U.S., those products um, pose no health risk whatsoever to humans at all. Very well. Let's dig into some of the research that you've done um, looking into uh, the potential for African swine fever being uh, transmitted in feeds. Uh, understand you had some research uh, set up with a cooper cooperator in, in Vietnam. Can you walk us through that? What, what were you looking for and how did you set up those uh, studies? Yeah, so that was a really unique opportunity that we are really, really fortunate to have a great collaborator lo located over Vietnam. And, and shortly after uh, ASF was first introduced into Vietnam or was first detected in the country, and I believe it was February of 2019, um, that, that uh, collaborator um, wanted to understand um, what risk was ASF to different um, aspects of their business, aspects of their swine production and feed production divisions. Um, and they had some farms that had become infected and were able to track back the origin of some of those infections and learn about that further. But it really, again, goes back to our PED days and some of the research that was implemented of environmental sampling, sampling of feeder ingredients, sampling on farm to help uh, make an epidemiological link um, between the feed um, and between um, swine production, whether there is a strong link there or whether we need to do anything to intervene. So that was really the basis of it. They, uh, they were very supportive and, and uh, knew some of the, the data and methods that were out there and wanted to apply it to their system and say, and take a step back, pull back the sheets, uh, open up the hood and say, what can we learn? What are our challenges today? Where are areas of opportunity that we can make improvement to overall keep our herd healthier, reduce the risk that uh, we spread this disease between groups of pigs? So that's really the basis of it. That was our, our foundation. We wanted to answer, what are we doing? What was the system doing well? And are there any gaps or any areas where improvements could be made? Um, so that really helped drive a lot of the, the sampling strategy early on. And uh, there were several different areas where we focused on. And, and again, it comes back to the people movement. Um, so some of that data would indicate that uh, really any area where people are coming and going and uh, largely that data shows that trucks are another area that are very problematic that in that part of the world, much of the feed uh, is not in bulk form, but in ra rather is in uh, bags. 
Um, it's a very labor intensive process. The truck has to drive into the farm. Um, several folks, whether they be farm employees or employees coming to the farm within that feed truck, have to unload those bags of feed into the farm. And then there's some that get back into the truck to go back to the mill to get the next load. So the people and vehicle movement we learned was very, very important that we need to understand further. And, as, and there's lots of data available indicating and, and showing that we can wash the outside of a truck pretty well. We've all been through a car wash. We can high pressure water. We can apply a disinfectant to the outside of a vehicle. That's really easy. Um, we know how to do that. That's effective. Now think when you're going home from work at the end of the day or going to the grocery store, opening up your car door, looking inside and looking around, it's not very easy to pressure wash and disinfect that. Um, and, and even with the rubber floor mats and those, it, it makes it a little easier, but seats, steering wheels, shifter knobs, there are so many different surfaces within the cab of a truck. It makes it very, very challenging to effectively disinfect. And we know that not only in the, some of the data with ASF, but other, some other swine pathogens, trucks of, of vehicles are a very, very common place to find that contamination. Um, so that's led to some other more recent, recent projects where we um, stand back and we went uh, to, several, to a scrap yard and find, found three scrap semis and took the cabs off those semis and brought those back to our uh, feed safety research center, center here at the university. And this spring, we took uh, several different surfaces in those and wheeled them into our BSL-2 lab and inoculated them with several different swine viruses and tested different ways of decontaminating and disinfecting those truck cabs. Um, and we still have a little bit more to learn from that. We need to follow up on that work some and understand it further. But really what some of the data to us and it really stood out to me is that people movement is so important and being able to disinfect and decontaminate surfaces where people go and things they touch is really, really important. But unfortunately, it's not that simple. Um, cabs of trucks are really, really tough to disinfect. And it, it likewise, a feed mill, whether that comes in, whether a pathogen comes into the mill in an ingredient or whether a truck driver coming from a farm walks that, that contamination, walks that virus or bacteria into the mill. Pathogens are, if there's anything harder to get a pathogen out of that harder than a truck cab, it's a feed mill. Um, there's so many different surfaces. It's a, it's a very complex scenarios with lots of dust and nooks and crannies and we can't go in very readily and, and pressure wash and disinfect very well um, so really really challenging environment to disinfect and and decontaminate so that's an area that we continue to have a lot of questions and need additional work but um, people move things around vehicles move things around and it's not all that simple to disinfect certain surfaces we've uh, we've come to find out yeah, I remember uh, during the webinar, one of the questions uh, was, are you using ozone um, in those truck cabs or what was it that you were using to disinfect those cabs in your study? Yeah, so in that one, there's a couple of different research questions we wanted to answer. One of them was, does application technique make a difference? If, uh, if we take a, a garden sprayer, pump handheld sprayer, put a disinfectant in that and sprayed the cab, what would be the impact of that compared to what's called a hurricane fumigation system? Got a small disinfectant tank and you plug it in and turn it on and it, it uh, creates a fine mist of whatever disinfectant you put in. So we would put that on the passenger seat of the truck, point it towards the dr driver's seat, turn that on for a period of time to let, let that um, generate a, a fume or a, a contact with all those surfaces. 
And then the final, the third treatment uh, that we were using in, in evaluating was chlorine dioxide based product. And this one that we were particularly intrigued about was the ability, very simple, very straightforward, a small packet, put it into contact with water and it generates a chlorine dioxide gas that fills that airspace entirely. So the nice thing about that that we were interested in was it in some sense removes a human element that uh, whether where, where you place that hurricane fumigation system or if you're using a handheld pump sprayer, it's very dependent upon how well the person is applying that disinfectant to that very, very complex series of surfaces. What we liked about the gas form, you put it in there, let it sit for 10 hours and stand back, and that fully fills that airspace, hopefully coming into contact with all of those complex surfaces within that within that truck cab. So we, like I mentioned, we still have a little bit more to learn there. And, and some of those initial results will be shared at our uh, Swine Day. Our Swine Day report will come out uh, mid-November here from the university, and we'll have an update available with some of the data there. But that was a big question uh, is, uh, is that gas, gas application form, could there be any benefit there? And we still have to learn a little bit more, but uh, uh, optimistic about the potential of that application technique. Yeah. Dr. Polk, were you involved in some of that research? And if so, what was your role? Yeah. So real quick, Scott, I want to make a comment. I think that ozone question is very interesting. I'm not an expert in it or know much about it at all, but it's funny how many ozone machines I've now seen on campus since COVID. So I'm guessing somebody thinks they work on viruses to some extent. Um, I think the interesting thing on the female side or with the truck caps um, that makes it a little different is the organic material and how do you handle that. And I think that's where your your application uh, becomes real intriguing and in trying to figure out how do we handle that versus if something's aerosolized and, and trying to handle it. So, um, yeah, from the research standpoint, we um, that project was actually um, hosted over in our or some of our the FSRC is managed by our um, it's attached to our female so we're really make sure we get all the equipment in there and handle that facility and help handle the application procedures and, and different things and try to think about how how these are going to be implemented from a practical standpoint um, to make sure you know we're really testing the applied portion of the research we're you know we're trying to build off of previous information that lead us to what we think will actually get rid of the virus. And then we're coming in from a, well, how do we actually apply it and see if that application works? So that's, that's really how we got involved. Um, we also kind of tagged onto this project to look at uh, boot baths and trying to figure out liquid versus dry boot baths and keeping uh, pathogens out from a foot traffic standpoint, because that's one of the biggest questions we get at females. Do we really need these? If we have foot baths, how often do we need to change them out? How much material buildup can you have in them? I mean, the questions just keep coming about the efficacy and if it's worth worrying about them. So while we're in this facility, because the biggest cost is getting in there, getting everything set up, getting all your approvals, et cetera, et cetera. And so we are fortunate enough to kind of tag on a little project just to try to develop a model of, you know, putting contamination, in this case, uh, virus on a boot and walking it through different types of scenarios, different foot baths or not foot baths with and without organic material 
to try to build that model that we can further test some of these practical application questions. So it's something we're working on. We're really excited about because um, it's it's uh, it seems like a very easy concept, but we get a ton of questions on what's the best way to do it uh, to make it worth the effort. So based on what you learned so far, what are some of those practical things you think we can take away today and actually use on the on the farm? I know there's I know there's more more research to be done, but what do you know so far? <laughs> yeah, I think to to build on the the boot bath project, I really thought that was a, a great way of um, answering some really simple questions. It seems that what types of products, how often you need to change it, but really the the science isn't out there nearly as much as we would like. So great project for forming the foundation of hopefully quite a bit of future work in that area. And and that area, one of the practical ones is that with a lot of disinfectants if there's organic material built up that disinfectant isn't nearly as effective um, and whether that's a dry disinfectant or a liquid disinfectant making sure that in a case of a boot bath that you clean those out periodically there's not a lot of organic material scum on the surface of that liquid disinfectant in the boot bath um, cleanliness of of those disinfectant baths are really really important and likewise, on, on whether it be truck cabs and insides of the cab or outside of the truck, making sure that you remove as much organic material as you can prior to applying a disinfectant um, is really, really important. Um, so those are some of the big takeaways that not only is taking a, a disinfectant, following the label is really important, making sure it's at the appropriate dilution, appropriate concentration. Um, the old adage of if a little is good, a lot is better isn't necessarily true when it comes to disinfectants. Um, so making sure you're following the label, diluting it at the appropriate rate. Um, contact time is a really important piece with disinfectants that just because you put a, a disinfectant on a surface doesn't mean it's instantly killing the ba bacteria, viruses, whatever pathogens you're concerned with. It takes a period of time for that disinfectant to work. Um, so making sure that appropriate contact time is really, really important as well. So we've learned a lot, um, a lot of work to, left to do, obvi obviously. But um, one of the big recommendations I'd say for on-farm application or in-mill application of some of these technologies is following the label is really, really important with contact time, dilution, um, removing organic material. Yeah, so you talk about organic material. What is it about organic material as opposed to inorganic material that makes it more of a, a better vector for, for the virus? Yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a microbiologist by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, so to keep things pretty simple um, and uh, within my knowledge base anyway, um, it's not as much the ability for organic material. And when I when we mean organic material, dirt, feces, feed, um, uh, all those types of materials. It's not as much, uh, in some cases, it is allows a virus to harbor better, stay, remain viable for longer. But a lot of it, when it comes down to disinfection, is those, or, those types of products or those types of compounds reduce the ability for a disinfectant to work. Um, lots of different classes of disinfectants, depending on their mechanism, mechanism and mode of action. But to keep it pretty straightforward, um, the ability, those types of products, feed material, dust, dirt, feces, reduces the ability for those disinfectants to kill whatever you're trying to kill. Um, so if you remove that material to start with, then that allows that disinfectant to actually kill what you're going after. Mm -hmm. And is it, is it actually a function of just contact? Is it almost like a barrier that 
prevents the disinfectant from coming in contact with that virus that protects it? Or is there, am I oversimplifying that? No, I think that that probably is is a is a pretty big component of it. I think there are also some functional, some chemical properties that change when feces comes into contact with a, a sure. disinfectant, changes that disinfectant and uh, reduces its ability to actually disinfect. So I, I think it's a, a lot it's a of complicated scenario and yeah. my simple brain, uh, if we remove all the feces before we disinfect, that's that's the best way to do it. Yep. So I know that Kansas State has done a lot of research on taking a look at the transmission of virus in feedstuffs. Uh, what can you tell us about some of the key learnings that you guys have found out there? Because a, a lot of the, you know, we, we buy feedstuffs from countries that are currently infected with uh, African swine fever. I think that the, to keep it easy and the biggest thing for me is what I keep coming back to is prevention. Whatever you can do to reduce the risk. Um, there's no one silver bullet. It's, it's multiple things that you could potentially do. Um, the more that you do, the less likely, the more that you do, the more you're likely to prevent it. And it's a much, although it seems like a headache to take these steps to have preventative steps in place. I think if you, if we ended up with some of these diseases or had contaminated mills, it's going to be a much bigger headache than you realize. And so that's that's kind of the key thing for me. It's just what do we think about on the front side from a preventative standpoint? How can we reduce the risk and understand every system's different? Some people have to do certain things no matter what. You know, maybe you don't you have to go a high risk ingredients because you have no other option or, you know, it, every system's different. But I think really taking a step back to to consider what can we do? And then the flip side of that is how do we build the culture around it to get the entire system uh, to have buy-in to doing that. So, you know, you can say, hey, we're going to do this for preventative measures. But if all your employees aren't bought into that system, then the success of it is going to be less. You mentioned some high-risk ingredients. Uh, can you elaborate on what those might be? Yeah, so, I mean, I think when... When we think about high risk, there's been a lot of research out there that that shows different ingredients, more of our protein sources and some other ones, animal mills that will harbor the virus. But we also need to think about how can something potentially come in contact with a virus. So, for instance, you know, corn in the U.S. right now is not a high risk ingredient. But if I have um, a thousand positive wild boars in my field that I'm about to harvest, does the risk of that ingredient go up, right? Because there's potential for contamination there. Or if I'm, you know, drying the grain on a road that um, trucks that haul live pigs is driving down, does that increase the risk of contamination? So I think being creative about how we think about what's the potential um, for this, these viral particles to come in contact with the ingredients and then understanding its ability to survive in those ingredients. So yeah. if the ingredient is going to go through a thermal processing step, you know, the risk is different than if it's a raw ingredient that's never been exposed to heat. Yeah. And where that, that whole research area is at still has some 
a lot of it's focused on we have this ingredient and if we inoculate a virus into that let's understand its stability and over time whether that's through shipping conditions and a big piece that uh, that Chad did a real nice job explaining, I think, that's really important, that's really hard to measure or hard to gauge, is what's the risk of that product becoming contaminated in the first place? And uh, the example of wild boar and, and drying on the side of the road is a great one. And another one that I, I often think about is, is something that's um, packaged in single-use disposable bags um, probably is a lot lower risk than something that's reused multiple times, whether that's a, a bulk ingredient container or in an area where certain disease is spreading, say Southeast Asia, for example, a truck coming back and forth, the cargo hold on that truck um, is a much more likely to contaminate that raw material as opposed to being in a highly specialized, highly biosecure facility that manufactures a specific product of an amino acid or any other vitamin mineral type of product to put it into single use bags that bag is sealed transported to its final destination to be opened and used i think of that as a little bit different risk profile compared to something that would be in bulk form um, again going back to the how could that material become contaminated in the first place so what are some things that we can do to reduce i heard uh chad talk about you know heat treating pelleting what are some other things that we can do to the feed if, uh, to, to try to reduce the pathogen load in the feed? Yeah, I think um, there's, there's, a, there's all your preventative steps to try to keep it out. If you were to get it in the feed, that's a different, different story. And um, the two main things that come to mind that I think are your biggest opportunities are heat treatment. The issue with heat treatment is it depends on the design of your facility. For instance, pet food facilities are designed differently than feed mills. And so the biggest issue um, is, although we may kill the virus in the pelleting process, if we're pulling ambient air back through our pellet cooler, if that virus is in the dust in the facility, are you really just pulling it back into your pellet cooler and recontaminating it? Um, so I think that's something you have to really think about um, to not build overconfidence in any kind of point in time. Um, mitigation is, is there potential for recontamination? Because what our research has shown us is if you run it through the mixer, it gets in the dust, it's in the facility, and it, at least from a, an RNA or DNA standpoint, you can still find that material there. And so I think your, your opportunity for recontamination is something you need to think about. Um, the other option is uh, in feed mitigants. Is there something you know you could potentially put in the feed um, that will reduce the survival of, of those viruses um, that would last over an extended period of time uh, to help reduce that risk? And what are you thinking, like formaldehydes, organic acids, those kinds of things? Sure. Jordan, if you want to build off of it, you can. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty diverse area um, that there's lots of different formaldehyde certainly has a lot of research behind demonstrating efficacy there. Um, organic acids, whether it's short chain fatty acids or a little bit longer medium chain fatty acids or glycerol monolaurate. Or, um, so lots of different um, essential oil type products um, have had demonstrated some efficacy at reducing viral stability. So really, there's a number of different products out there that um, have some data to indicate potential ability to reduce a, a viral stability. 
but it's a really interesting area um, given there's some decent data out there um, but from the terms of being able to make claims or label indications um, very very limited um, as far as what's out there and what um, manufacturers suppliers um, folks can say um, there's some data in a number of different areas um, but very very limited um, information that um, can be shared in terms of uh, making potential claims um, so wide diverse area lots of different products i think have a lot of um, potential to serve and add value by reducing that risk um, by adding to feed. Um, but it's a, it's a tough area and um, there's a lot of regulatory considerations that you need to tread very lightly with as well, it seems. So I'd like to transition a little bit to, uh, you know, eliminating the risk and, and, and how we do that. Before we do that, though, is there any key elements that we've missed related to uh, what we know about African swine fever transmission? I, I actually want to throw a question at Zach. Um, I think if we think about getting ASF, the, we've talked a lot about movement. If you're moving things around, that's our issue. The virus isn't going to move itself. It's either going to be some kind of aerosolization or it's going to be humans moving it around. And um, I think in the swine industry, we're trying to figure out what's the best way to handle this. Um, and I'm, I'm really ignorant to what the poultry industry's done, but I've heard some about the National Poultry Improvement Plan um, and some things that were done in influenza. And I didn't know, Scott or Zach, if y'all had any input on how that plan has influenced the industry and uh, the pros and cons or discussion points that maybe we could learn something from, from your areas. Yeah, well, the NPIP covers uh, several different diseases they do mg ms um, avian influenza and then salmonella florum and i think it was originally started with salmonella florum and they've virtually eliminated that in the u.s i don't believe there's been a case in a long time um, but they they're doing a lot with avian influenza now so before we market birds and certain plants are, are certified clean so before you move birds from the house to the plant you have to have an, a clean ai test and they also do routine monitoring. So it depends on whether you have commercial birds or breeders or parent stock birds um, as to how often they get they get tested. But yeah, it's it's a good way to keep an eye on things and make sure uh, all your breeders and everything's free of disease. But you yeah, know, I think it's uh, it's pretty important and helps uh, helps keep an eye on it because especially in ducks and some of your waterfowl stuff, if they have AI, they don't necessarily show any signs. So it's a uh, kind of a way to mm. just keep track on everything. Yeah. Guys, as we kind of move toward the end here, what are uh, some of the keys to creating uh, an effective biosecurity program? Yeah, I think Chad mentioned it, and I think it, um, it it's really, really important. I think biosecurity, effective biosecurity, starts with culture. Um, it doesn't matter what type of SOP you have. You could have the greatest plan in the world. Um, invest a lot of money into making it happen and have the best science behind it. If, a, if an institution, if a company doesn't have the appropriate culture, um, doesn't matter what you do for biosecurity. If those folks don't know how to do it well, know why they're doing it, know how to do it, and have the support of their management and their leaders behind them backing why we need to do this, dedicating the resources, dedicating the training, and having that mindset of biosecurity within the company, um, it doesn't matter what you do, it's not going to be as effective as it could. So I think that's one of the, it's, but how you establish that can be very, very challenging. 
Um, but culture, I think, is often overlooked when we think about biosecurity and biosecurity programs. And I think it is the core. It's one of the center components um, of having this effective um, biosecurity program within a system. And I think to build off of that, the to supplement the culture, I think you have to have the investment from the company to make it a process that seems like it's a part of your job and not an add-on that makes your job more difficult. So adding, investing in it to where it's a natural flow, it's part of the everyday process. You know, this is what we're going to do. This is how we do it and not, oh yeah, you need to also do this on top of your regular routine, um, I think builds into that culture. Yeah, and the way you set up a facility, a feed mill, a system is really, really is important within that. If you can make a, a practice convenient where you're incorporating biosecurity, but it's somewhat convenient or less of an inconvenience compared to all other ways of doing it, we can incorporate some of those practices much, much easier as if it's something completely foreign, adds a lot more work to the day. Something like an entry bench, I think, is a real good example of that. You can have a clean, dirty line or a line of separation, but a painted two-inch white, white or yellow strip on the floor isn't as much of a barrier as a two-foot-tall bench that you can't step over. Having just a physical barrier like that is much, much more effective as opposed to a line of separation where you have to sit down, have to take off your shoes, swing over and put them into other boots. Um, it's much more intuitive that way as opposed to knowing exactly what a yellow line painted on the floor is supposed to indicate from a biosecurity perspective. So those types of things that the culture, the why, how can we incorporate into their daily chore, daily tasks without making an inconvenience and making sure we design our system and design our facility to accommodate that the best we can. And I think the, the follow-up too with edu the educational piece, the Vietnam data set was a great example of the company invested in a lab to monitor, and then they took their monitoring and created a story that they could show their employees, hey, this is why we want you to do this, because when you don't, look what happens. And like they could really create the visual to allow them to see the reasoning behind what they're doing. So that follow-up piece, that educational piece to really demonstrate the importance of it, I think is what really drove the message home. And once they started doing that, you saw the numbers change. I mean, we went from seeing positives to no positives. And it was all because they were able to take the data back, say, hey, look, we found this, we wanna make these changes they got everybody's buy-in and then they were able to make it happen. Yeah. And I'm a veterinarian, so I like diagnostic testing uh, and being able to do that. And you can't improve what you don't measure. Um, another real common phrase, common terminology that routine monitoring. Okay. What's working? Where do we have gaps? Where can we improve is really, really important to help continuously improve our process. Um, Biosecurity bio is not stagnant. It's not the same one day to the next versus one year to the next. Um, as you identify gaps, identify problems, making improvements to how things are done is really, really important. And I'm a, a big advocate uh, and big fan of being able to, to critique and, and improve some of our diagnostic techniques to be able to further uh, improve the way we do things. Guys, circling back to the culture, we were talking with some dairymen last week. They also stressed the importance of culture uh, in, in, in their uh, um, 
businesses. You know, we see it in sports uh, teams, you know, those that have culture can thrive. We see it in businesses and yet it seems elusive, right? For some companies and teams. So my question is how, how do we go about building these effective cultures within our organizations? Um, and let's, uh, let's make it specific to biosecurity. So I, um, I don't have the answer for you right now. And I actually have thought about trying to pull some information together, but I did start reading this book called the culture code and it's this, the guy who wrote it, don't even remember his name, but he went back and he surveyed, uh, and met with some of the highest, uh, producing most successful, however you want to describe it, teams of people like the Navy SEALs versus other uh, branches and some of the most elite NBA teams who shouldn't have been as good as they were and companies like Apple and, and starts pointing out different things of how you get buy-in from people and how do you get people, I think it comes back to a sense of trust. How do you get people to trust and feel vulnerable and willing to speak up and provide input and accept uh, criticism and all these things that go into it. Um, so I, I, if you're interested in that area, I'd highly recommend reading the book, The Culture Code. Um, it looks at it from a lot of different areas. None of the examples are based on agriculture, at least to the point I've gotten in the book so far. Um, so I think it'd be really interesting to read it as kind of an outside perspective and think about how could some things you could do relate back to your day-to-day -day operations. Yeah, great comments, Chad. I think that's uh, maybe something we need to look into for a future webinar and podcast. Zach, you were going to mention something. Go. Yeah, I was going to say, I've worked with several commercial farms and developing SOPs, biosecurity protocols, and they seem to you get a lot more buy-in if you actually make the people involved with coming up with it instead of just saying, here's the sheet, follow it. Because then they're like, oh, well, we can't do this because. And I've had a lot more success with that, involving them in the, in the creation of, of the plan. I, I want to follow up comment on that, Zach. You're right. We, uh, one of the biggest issues in a female is covering the receiving pit. And it seems like an extremely easy thing, but it's a pain when you have all these trucks coming and going, pulling a huge mat across the floor. And we've had a couple of companies um, with multiple mills and they'll say, go design it. Whatever you need to do, design whatever makes your life the easiest and we'll support you. And they've almost kind of created this internal competition of which mill could create the best uh, most automatic receiving pit covers to take the load off of them. And, and they've come up with some pretty cool designs. Guys, as we kind of get ready to wrap it up here, um, Jordan, I wanted to go into something where you delineated the difference between prevention and intervention and the importance of both. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. And Chad alluded to, to some of those concepts as well, which we'll build upon a little bit right here. Um, biosecurity is not, there's no magic silver bullet in biosecurity, at least nothing I've ever found. Um, and I don't, I don't, I think we can be looking for a long time and not find that. So really it's a series of, I like to think about it on the concept of intervention and prevention. Um, there's an, another way that's um, fairly intuitive to think about it. Biosecurity is a series of hurdles. Um, in order for a pathogen to get into contact with animals, it's got to go across this track. But if we put a bunch of hurdles in that pathway, 
the ability for that pathogen to get into contact with animals much, much less. Um, so some of those are prevention. What can we do for the ingredients and the materials that come into contact with our pigs, whether that's feed, whether that's employee clothing, employee shoes, anything that comes into contact with our pigs, what can we do in the steps leading up to that to reduce that those those um, surfaces that feed those ingredients from getting contaminated with asf to begin with that's the prevention piece however another if we add another hurdle to it we're doing several steps to prevent it from happening but for some reason if those steps aren't effective and asf does get into that material what then can we do on the tail side to help reduce that risk further whether it's thermal processing act an active um, feed mitigant type of of product whether if, if we want to um, dig into that data and, and understand that data and implement with that in our system so biosecurity is a series of hurdles a lot of those hurdles are prevention avoiding that contamination in the first place and then in the backside intervention if it does get there what can we do to reduce that risk further um, and again thermal processing um, active mitigation um, with adding a variety of different chemical compounds or holding time is another one that we know that viruses naturally degrade over time um, so if we have a product or an ingredient and we hold it for a certain period of time we reduce the ability of that virus to cause an infection if provided to pigs. Um, so really prevention intervention woven together, really important. They form a series of hurdles within our biosecurity chain. Very well, gentlemen, they just called last call. And with that, I'd like you to, we've, we've had a great discussion today. We've covered uh, uh, quite a few topics. I'd like you to kind of narrow it down to maybe one, two, three key things that our audience should take away from the conversation today. And uh, Zach, I'm gonna start with you. I definitely think that we need to realize this is a real issue or could be a real issue for the US when it gets here. Um, we need to be diligent not to bring it here and uh, be strict on biosecurity and training. Excellent, Chad. Um, I think the, the big thing is, is we need to take what we know and, and try to get everybody's support around it get everybody working together. Um, although a lot of times we seem to be competing against each other when it comes to something like transboundary disease, I think we have to figure out how to compromise from company to company to work together to, to make this best for the, the whole US and um, understand how it affects everything globally, but also here in, on the home turf. And finally, Jordan. Yeah, I really great uh, summary. And one of the big things that I, I think we sometimes get a little bit worried with is letting the goal of perfection get in the way of making any progress. Yeah. Um, we've got a facility that's uh, 50, 100 years old. It's not designed perfectly. It's difficult to cover pits, different areas. Um, but those are some areas that those hurdles specifically, we may not be able to incorporate but let's do something. Anything is better than nothing. And just because it's not perfect doesn't mean it can't reduce our risk. So I think as an industry, it's really important to keep that in mind that we're one group. If if something like ASF gets here into the US, it, it doesn't just affect the company that that disease was found in their facilities. It affects everybody. Um, so working together in, as an industry is really, really important. And, and a lot of times getting the ball rolling, doing something, is much, much, much better than doing nothing. So I think that's an important piece to keep in mind as an industry. Yeah, well said, Jordan. 
Gentlemen, uh, this has been uh, a lot of fun. I appreciate uh, you guys coming in tonight to speak with us. I uh, appreciate the insightful conversation and, and practical tips. This is such an important topic as we look to improve security for our feed and total food systems. I also want to take time to thank our loyal listeners for stopping up by here once again at the Real Science Exchange. Hopefully you heard something new. Hopefully you have something you can take back with you. Uh, to impact your business, and hopefully you had a little bit of fun along the way. If you like what you heard, please remember to hit the five-star rating on your way out and leave us a glowing review. Those are always welcome. Uh, Don't forget to request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt. You just need to like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balcam.com. Our Real Science Lecture series of webinars continue with new topics every few weeks. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see upcoming events and past topics. We hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends.